Welcome to the Price Lab Podcast, a series focusing on digital humanities and how scholars got to where they are now. I'm Stuart Varner, the Managing Director of the Price Lab at Penn. Today's guest is Jesse Daniels, a professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center at CUNY. Her main area of interest is race and digital media technologies, and she is widely known as an expert on internet manifestations of racism. So Jesse, it's really great to meet you. And just to begin, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your trajectory as a scholar and, and your intellectual background. Sure, it's great to meet you as well. I'm thrilled to be here. I, um, you know, I was trained as a pretty traditional sociologist, a qualitative sociology uh, sociologist at University of Texas at Austin. I worked with Joe Fagan, um, specializing in race and racism, studied white supremacy in graduate school. And then I did a postdoc with Patricia Hill Collins at University of Cincinnati. And, you know, that was the place where I worked on transforming my dissertation into my first book, which is called White Lies. And I got my first job at um, my first tenure track job at Hofstra uh, University on Long Island. And that was in... um, the mid 90s. And it just so happened that I had a really good friend. And he was very into computers and technology. And we would ride the train and talk about how we thought the internet was going to change everything. And, you know, no one around us thought so (laughs) at the time. Um, But we were persuaded (laughs) in our own rightness. And that really is part of what got me thinking about, um, you know, the internet broadly defined and how it was um, changing society and what it was going to do, not only to society, but also to the field of sociology. So, and since then, I've done um, another book on white supremacy and looked at it, um, how the internet changed white supremacy called cyber racism. And, uh, and then have gone on to do sort of work that looks at how the internet is changing our jobs as academics. You know, how is how is the work that we do as scholars changing because of digital technologies and um, and also kind of broadly looking at uh, something that, that I call digital sociology. It's sort of an emerging subfield within sociology um, that, that sort of looks at how society and technology intersect broadly defined. So thinking about this impact of, of white supremacy on your research, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing right now and, and any, any projects you're, you're writing and researching? There are two projects, really. One of them is, um, is a very personal project, is a memoir project, looking at how um, white supremacy really is, was reproduced in my own family and sort of my resistance to that. Um, I found out in the middle of doing a dissertation on white supremacy that my paternal grandfather had been in the Klan. I discovered it quite by accident by pulling a a copy of Thomas Dixon's uh, The Klansman off the shelf at my great aunt's house and asking her, uh, Aunt Marie, why, why, why do you have this book with my grandfather's name written in, in in the inscription. And she's like, oh, honey, he was in that group. I mean, just that casually and just that matter of factly. (laughs) I was sort of stunned and uh, taken aback and tried to, you know, see what the reaction was in the rest of my family. And people were very blasé about it. Um, And eventually that discovery, plus my own work on white supremacy, led me to change my name. So I changed my first and last name, um, which had been Suzanne Harper, to Jesse. Uh, Daniels after Jesse Daniel Ames 
um, who was the woman who started an organization in Texas called the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. And it was sort of in, in honor of her and in honor of that work and as a way to resist the white supremacy in my own family. Just as I was about to publish White Lies, I was like, I cannot put my great, my clan granddaddy's name on this book, and I've got to do something. And so that was the thing that I decided to do. And when I, when I did that, and I sent the preface to that book to my father, he was so enraged that he had me locked in a psych ward. Um, and thus begins the memoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other project I'm working on is a um, you know narrative nonfiction, a more kind of traditional so- social science project that is called uh, Tweetstorm, about the mainstreaming of white supremacy in the current media landscape. And it's really about how tech companies like Twitter and media broadcasting uh, companies like Fox have been shoulder to shoulder in this project of mainstreaming white supremacy so that we have the administration that we do right now, not not just the current occupant of the White House, but, but you know, the current attorney general who is, is doing uh, a lot of work to mainstream uh, white supremacist policies and programs that are, that are going to hurt, um, you know, people of color for generations to come. Now, the story that you just tell begins with this very analog moment mm-hmm. of pulling a book yeah. off the shelf. And then we end in this very different trajectory mm-hmm. of, of the tweet storm. And I'm wondering how and why the digital remains at the core for you and, and how you incorporate that into your teaching and, and into the classroom. For me, it's very, um, it feels very organic and very um, natural. Why, why wouldn't I use new tools if there are better ways to, to do things and that sort of thing? The main way that I incorporate digital technologies in the classroom is through a learning management system, an LMS that I use called Canvas, um, which I like because it's open. In other words, I can share that uh, class that I have online with anyone. Um, But the other thing that I, I do in the classroom, and most people don't think of this as digital technology, but it really is, is I use um, documentaries, which now are Uh, come to us through digital media technologies like a streaming service. I'm very um, fond of Canopy with a K. And through that one service, we have access to more than, I think it's 30,000 films and videos. So every week I do a a video, a documentary, and that's paired with a reading, um, sort of like a food and wine pairing, except a reading and video pairing. And, uh, And then at the weekend, they have to do this you know, fairly straightforward quiz, but they also have to do a, a, a written post that is um, really intended to design to get them to make connections between the reading and the film and sometimes a current event. So as the semester goes on, we move away from the stuff that we're talking about in the class, the strict sort of course material. And my goal at the end of 15 weeks is to have them uh, applying what they're learning in a class about sociology to what's happening in current events. I'm wondering if you could tell us a, a story of a, a specific session in class where you were incorporating materials in this way, and and did you have a kind of revelation of what the of what the benefits were of of incorporating digital tools with traditional forms of reading and writing? Well, I think I mean there's so many stories, but I guess for me. Um, 
You know, because I was trained sort of as a traditional sociologist and a traditional pedagogue, you know, one of the things that we were often taught is that, you know, the struggle of teaching in a in a classroom is trying to get everyone to participate, you know, and you always have one or two or three or whatever, 10% of the class who will always speak up and always raise their hands. And then you'll have some people that just, they will never speak in class. And that for me, it was like a constant struggle with teaching before digital tools. And I feel like with digital participation, everyone gets a chance to participate. And that really shifts things. So I feel like I get to know students, all of my students, in a way that I never could um, in a pre-digital sort of classroom. When we first started talking, you were describing your trajectory as a sociologist and 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 this gradual move into the digital, which, uh, from what you say, eventually became at the center of what you do. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what are some of the drawbacks, if any, that you've experienced in uh, incorporating the digital and digital tools to this extent in your teaching? And is there a part of you that <laughs> that longs for these days of of just kind of you know analog sociology? Uh, no, I never long for the analog days. <laughs> Let me just start there. The drawbacks for teaching and um, with technology really are not so much about the classroom um, as they are about kind of the expanded pedagogy, if you will, that I do on Twitter. I mean, I think of it sometimes as activism and sometimes as teaching, but, you know, I talk about anti-racist stuff on Twitter and and not everyone supports that. And so uh, sometimes they come after you if that's the thing you're talking about. So that happened to me last fall in fall of 2017 and um, got pretty viciously attacked by the far right with death threats and rape threats and, you know, that sort of thing. And um, But, you know, that's died down. And I think it's still, um, I still think it's valuable, you know, and I still think, I, I still wouldn't go back to the analog days. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's better. Is there a particularly uh, salient example of a moment where um, the digital and its incorporation in, into the classroom was a kind of key to a, to unlocking a certain understanding within the students? Just after my first book, White Lies, came out, I was uh, teaching a class in race and ethnicity that I took into the computer lab. I had one student type into a an old-timey browser, Netscape or something, uh, kkk.com. And I had another student go use a different browser, maybe AltaVista, and typed in Martin Luther King. And both those students ended up at white supremacist sites. And that sent me on a really a years-long journey of trying to figure out what had just happened. <laughs> I, and I couldn't understand it, and I couldn't understand how to study it either. And that was about uh, the time that I took my first leave from academia and went to work in the dot-com world. And part of what I figured out working at the dot-com is they were, I learned that there were these, basically a marketing tool called web usability studies where people would sit and basically watch somebody surf the web and, you know, write down what they record, what they clicked on, what they looked at, what they didn't click on. And they would talk to them about what they saw on the, <coughs> excuse me, what they saw on those websites. And that, to me, unlocked a sort of puzzle, you know, like, oh, I think I could understand what was going on with these students of mine if I could 
sort of put somebody through one of these web usability studies with these with these websites. And then I began to understand more about what I call cloaked sites, which are sites that disguise authorship in order to conceal a political agenda like martinlutherking.org. And I began to understand that there were more of these around and that I thought they were going to present a problem further on down the line, but I wanted to talk to young people about that. And that was the study that I designed for cyber racism, the second book. Um, basically, I did a web usability study with in-depth interviews with young people and asked them about navigating to white supremacist sites and how they made sense of them, how they would decide on using those versus a, a legitimate civil rights site or a legitimate library site, li- li- Library of Congress, um, instead of their um, instead of one of these cloak sites. And I learned a lot doing that, but I really feel like that whole research project began with those students of mine in that computer lab that day, just seeing them sit down at computers and type in these really disparate search terms, KKK and Martin Luther King, and both end up at white supremacist sites. Um, so just to say a little bit more about that, Martin Luther King is a white supremacist site owned by Don Black, the same guy that runs Stormfront, the largest, longest running white supremacist portal for many years. Um, and it it uh, purports to be a tribute site to Dr. King, but is really a, um, a at the very bottom of the site, there's a link to Stormfront, and there's a discussion forum there that calls into question Dr. King's legacy and in various ways. And the goal, of course, is to roll back civil rights advances. So in part, the, um, the literacy dimension of what you do in, involves really, could involve p- really poking around a website in order to to uncloak it. Um, it makes me think part of what's so um, exciting about teaching is that you can go in expecting to do one thing <laughs> and it, it becomes the exercise becomes completely different and and it set you on this, as you say, a years long journey. Yeah. And I'm wondering now with all of this experience, how you try to kind of p- predict problems that might arise um, and and certain things you you techniques of, of avoiding mm-hmm. problems yeah I wish I, <laughs> I wish my expertise had led to that sort of <laughs> epiphany but you know I think it's the same it's the same thing that um, that has always been true about teaching is is about paying attention to the students and what and where they are, and meeting them where they are. And that's really always been my approach to it. And I think there's a, I think there's a real joy in that, um, and a real uh, excitement in it. But there's also a real, um, you know, there's a synergy, because I, I learn from them as well, um, as they learn from me, learn about where, where young people are today, um, in terms of what they know and what they don't. And listening to you, um, and coming to understand that anti-racism is at the heart of both your research and your teaching, I get the impression that you don't think that anti-racism can be taught without the digital, particularly because uh, the digital world is one of the most insidious places of, it, of racism's um, dissemination. Yeah, I mean, I really think the digital is... Um changing racism. I mean, that was one of the original questions that I had back in the 90s about, you know, the rise of the popular internet and how it was changing our social world. And one of the biggest ways it was changing it was giving new opportunities 
for racist expression, new opportunities for avowed racists to connect to each other, new opportunities now on social media for racist attacks, for to actually go after somebody. Um, and it's part of the reason why um, Twitter is so popular with white supremacists is because there's more people of color as a percentage of users on Twitter than there are on other social media platforms. So it actually becomes a, um, a place of convenient targets. And of course, there's no or very little uh, pushback from Twitter itself, the platform. So it's a, it's a, it becomes weaponized in a particular kind of way. And, and I think that we have to understand that to be able to do the work of anti-racism. So I'm not sure I would agree necessarily that we have to know the, we have to use the digital or know the digital, I'm not sure the way you phrased the question, but that we need the digital to, to do anti-racism. But I think to understand racism, we have to understand the digital. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been really great talking to you. It's been great fun. Thanks for having me. The Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania would like to thank Penn Libraries, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and our Price Lab Fellows for their support in producing this podcast. To learn more about the work of the Price Lab, you can visit us at pricelab.sas.upenn.edu.